Well, Merry Christmas to everyone. We're so glad to have you with us today. Maybe you're here visiting with us to see uh, your favorite kid today, but we're so glad to have you. And uh, for all of you joining us online, Merry Christmas to you. We're always glad that you're able to worship with us wherever you are, near or far. It's always so good to have you. Rick and Kim, we've been praying for you this week. And uh, Rick let me know he watches every week online. Uh, and so we were praying for him. He was in the hospital this week, one of our online attenders. You know, the kids are so great. I just love watching the kids uh, do their thing. And and uh, how many know there's no such thing as the junior Holy Spirit, right? It's the same God that moves in us and through us and empowers all of us. And I just love to say the kids aren't the church of the future. They're the kid, the church of today, right? And part of us, the intergenerational church. Have you ever had the thought or used the phrase, you think you know somebody, you think you know somebody. You ever had that thought, use that phrase? And, uh, you know, sometimes we use that phrase in a negative context, right? You misjudge someone's character or their integrity, and, uh, and they've disappointed you, right? That's when the person hasn't lived up to the things that you assumed or believe about them, and it can be upsetting, can it? I saw this video this week of this girl who was with her mom grocery shopping, and I think in the video that she has just had her wisdom teeth pulled. How many know that those are the best videos? You get the unfiltered version. And this girl is discovering in this moment, grocery shopping with her mom, that her mom isn't exactly who she thought she is. Take a look. You think you know somebody, right? We think of that in a negative context when they've disappointed us. How many know sometimes that it's the predictable, the people that you think are so, um, you know, uh, so the people are so predictable. Once in a while, they surprise you with unexpected behaviors or things, you know, in a good way, right? Have you ever had a coworker burst out in song? Or maybe it's like the quiet person, the unassuming person that just gives that like really hilarious response. Uh, Holly and I, we have a friend and her name is Sherry. And uh, we found out that after nine o'clock at night, we, we call her Silly Sherry comes out. And so we're always trying to see if we can keep her up past her bedtime because she just acts in unpredictable ways. You think you know her until you get her up past nine o'clock and then there's a whole nother sherry that comes up. It's, it's amazing, right? Sometimes it's not the things that people do, uh, but sometimes it's the things about them, their stories, their, the trivia of their life that surprises us. And so for me, I've been getting to know the staff the last two years. You know, you think you know somebody. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, I had this one day where I felt like I was discovering all this new stuff about our team that I never knew before. Five and things. And uh, and so I wanted to play You Think You Know Somebody, uh, Bethel Church Staff Edition, okay? So here we have all the Bethel staff on the screen. You can see all our smiling faces. I'm going to give you a fact about each person, and I want you to try to guess who uh, belongs to that fact, okay? So uh, we're going to start really easy, nice and easy. Uh, this one should be good, but this person was born in Calgary on Christmas Eve. This person has a Christmas Eve birthday. Any guesses who this might be? Holly! Okay, there you go. Holly Noel. That's her name right there. Good guess for you. All right, I didn't know this about this person. This person lived in California. I had no idea who this might be. Any guesses? Person lived in California. It is Nadine. Nadine lived in California for a short period. I had no idea. This person was born in Barbados. Barbudin, it is Riley. Yes, you are right. He was born in Barbados. You might not have known about this. This person once spent three days hanging out with a gang from the Albanian mafia. 
<laughs> Ralph, there's a story. Now, there's a story that goes with that. You'll have to ask Ralph about his mission trip, hanging out with the Albanian mafia. This person has a tattoo of sushi. A sushi tattoo. Andrea, okay, Andrea, the, the tattoo of sushi. I didn't know this until we got to the, uh, the Christmas parade just a few weeks ago. This person has a fear of horses. Uh, it's Kirsten, right? Kirsten, she was hiding behind Riley when the horses came by. I had no idea she had a... Uh, and then this person left on the list has eaten an entire McDonald's Big Mac in only two bites. <laughs> right there. I gave myself away. Two bites for an entire Big Mac McDonald's meal. If you ever tell me I have a big mouth, I will agree with you. That is true. But you think you know somebody. You know, over the past two weeks, we've been in our Christmas sermon series. We've been focusing on a prophetic word, a prophetic scripture of the Old Testament that was fueling the hope of the people of the Old Testament then. And it continues to fuel our hope today. You know, these verses were, that were drawing insight and strength from, they were written over 700 years before the Christmas story unfolded in an unassuming stable. And as we talked about, these uh, prophecies are a part of over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament that talk about the character and nature of the coming Messiah. It talks about the uh, specific details about the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ. And specifically in these passages, Isaiah prophesies about four facets of Christ's character. Four titles or names, we just sang about them so beautifully a moment ago that describe him, attributes that we've been unpacking each week. I came across this quote by Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, and he says this. He says, so deep is the mystery of the person of our Lord that he must reveal himself to us or we shall never know him. He is not discovered by research or discerned by reason. So deep is our Savior that he has to reveal himself to us. We can never imagine or research or discover him for ourselves. He reveals himself to us. But the great news is that God isn't hiding from us. God isn't elusive or reclusive. God wants to be known. In Acts 17, it says that his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. This morning, I want you to know, as Holly said a moment ago, God is not far. He is near today. In Isaiah 55, 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. That's actually the whole book of Isaiah. That's the whole theme of Isaiah's writing, is this unrelenting God pursuing his people. He wanted the people to know in Isaiah's day that God is for them. And he wants us to know today that God is for us. He's for us today. And so we've entitled this series, Unto Us. Would you say that with me? Say, Unto Us. Unto Us. The son is given unto us, thus child is born. And we've been looking at this incredible gift from God found in Isaiah chapter 9, if you want to turn with me there today. The kids just read it so beautifully for us. These uh, scriptures are meant to inspire the people who received them 700 years ago. These same scriptures were meant to inspire the people who were with Jesus as he was born, as A.D., B.C. turned to A.D., and he meant to inspire us today in 2023. 
So let's read Isaiah 9 together. It says, The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And you will enlarge the nation of Israel, and his people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. And then come to verse 6. Can we read this together? Would you read it with me off the screen? For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. If you talked about the context of this in week one, what was going on in, uh, in uh, King Ahaz's day, 700 BC. But in this passage, we see apparent contradictions. We see this child will be called a wonderful counselor. How many know that, you know, kids can give some good advice, but it's not always wonderful, right? We see the son who will be called an everlasting father. How do you reconcile that? How do you have an infant, an infant who is infinite? And we see that the same Jesus, who is later called the man of sorrows, is here called the mighty God. A lot of contradictions, not contradictions so much as paradoxes, to unpack here. And I love how Spurgeon says that we discover God by his revelation, not by research, uh, and not by discerning of our own reason, but is revealed by God. God reveals himself to us. And then we experience that truth personally. How many have enjoyed experiencing the truth of who God is in your own life? Amen. In week one, we talked about, uh, in Hebrew, it's called a Pele Yoetz. Pele Yoetz. We talked about our wonderful counselor. Last week, we talked about El Gabor, our mighty God. Today, we're talking about our Aviad, our Aviad, our everlasting Father. Now, the first thing I got to admit to you is as I was thinking about doing this passage for our Christmas series, I was reading it over. The first thing I did is I had to go right to the text and figure out what am I going to do when we call Jesus the everlasting Father? How do I, what am I, how do I unpack that before I commit to teaching this? What am I getting myself into? How many know we think of God the Father and we think of Jesus as a son? How do we reconcile God or Jesus as everlasting Father, I had to, to, to go here. It's not a name I've associated with Jesus necessarily. I don't remember ever hearing him called Everlasting Father growing up. And, uh, and you, here's the thing. You won't find the words Trinity written in Scripture, but it's a concept that's quite clear. It's quite uh, uh, hard to understand, but quite clearly presented as we read through Scripture. This word, idea of Trinity. And it's hard for our finite grasp to mind, but Scripture is Scripture speaks of this theological mystery. How many are glad that you don't have to understand gravity to enjoy its effects? 
Right? How many are glad you don't have to understand how cells combine and create life and grow and that your body today was once an embryo? How many are glad you don't have to understand how that happens to enjoy the life that you're giving or the living, right? And so I'm glad that I don't always have to have all the theology uh, grasp. But I, as we look at this, we see this idea uh, of Scripture that there is only one God. Hebrews of the Old Testament uh, talks about this. It's central to Jewish belief. It's central to Christian belief. And the Hebrews in Deuteronomy 6.4 have a word for it. It's called the Shema. The Shema is a theological word that basically means a one God. In Deuteronomy 6.4 it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then we come to this idea of Trinity. What is the Trinity? How do we understand one God in three persons? If you talk to a Muslim, they'll say, how can, G- how can God have a son? God doesn't have a son. They're wrestling with that. If you talk to Mormons, they talk about how Jesus is not God. God Jesus is created by God, and he is one of us. How do we, how do we have this, this idea? But we see in Scripture this idea of Trinity, that God is one in essence, but three in person. God is one in essence, but three in person. Now, it would be a mistake to think of God as a pie. Now, I've got you thinking about pie, all right? So you're thinking about pie today. That's okay. God's not a pie, one pie divided into three parts. It's not that each part of the Trinity is one-third of God. That's not how uh, God describes himself. Uh, God is not one person revealing himself in three different ways. Oh, that's called modalism. That's a mistake theologically. It's not that we have God in heaven, then he came to earth, and God revealed himself as a, a Jesus. And it's not one God revealing himself in three persons. It's one God, fully God, but three persons making up the Trinity. How do we understand that? I don't know. But in the Bible, we see in Matthew chapter 3 an example of this where we come to Jesus' baptism. After his baptism, as Jesus came out of the water, the heavens opened, and it says that the saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and setting upon him. And then a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Now, it's hard theology to grasp, I know. Some of you are visual learners. So here's a diagram that uh, someone's put together to try to help us understand what does it mean to have one God who's made up of three persons? One in essence, three in person. So here's a, a graphic for you. Now, some of you uh, learn better through memes. And uh, so here's a theological meme for you to help you understand uh, what this concept is of the Trinity. Now, coming back to Isaiah's word from the Lord, a prophecy is meant to restore joy. It's meant to instill hope. It says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he will be to you an everlasting father. Now, what's happening here is not a contrast between Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father. We're not actually talking about Trinity at all. This isn't about God's uh, Jesus' place in the Godhead. We're just talking about the character or the attributes of who this Son will be, character or attributes of who Jesus is. How does he care for us? How does he function in his role as a Savior? How many know if there's anything we need in a Savior, it's a loving and restoring Father? Right? How can we understand? How can we relate to Christ as our everlasting Father? By asking, well, what does a Father do? What does a Father do? You know, before we get there, we need to recognize that one of the hurdles 
of relating to both God the Father, as we see in the Trinity, or understanding Jesus as the everlasting Father, as we see expressed here, is that our view of God can often be a projection or a rejection of our earthly father. Many of us had really great fathers. We had good fathers growing up. And because of that, we have a lot of fond memories and, and to show for it. But many of us have also had a, a negative experience looking at our fathers. Some of our greatest pain is associated with our fathers. You know, it's not a secret that therapists often address family of origin issues. You know, it's not a secret that we talk about the idea of a father wound. You know, when we go looking for help in emotional trauma, a lot of times our doctors and our therapists will, will help us unpack this idea of a father wound. Stephen Poulter in his book, The Father Factor, talks about four fathering dysfunctions that can lead to woundedness. And, and I, I just, uh, in this moment, I want you to know this is a safe place. I just believe that God has healing. God has understanding for us as we unpack this a little bit. But before fathering dysfunctions that can lead to woundedness, the, the first one is the never satisfied dad. Some of us had a dad that no matter what we did, it just seemed like we could never do enough to please them. For some of us, there was always a comparison against what other kids were doing. For some of us, it was this idea of where what we didn't do or fall short. Instead of celebrating what we accomplished, it was always looking to what more could we have done, what more could we have done. There's this consistent messaging that we're not enough, that we're not living up to the expectation, whether we're not smart enough or athletic enough, maybe we weren't uh, pretty enough or skinny enough. There's this idea that we are not enough. And so as kids, sometimes we grow up with this idea that if I achieve more, I'll be worth more. If I work harder, I'll be celebrated. I will earn my father's uh, value and appreciation. And as we grow up, we realize that our self-worth goes in cycles, doesn't it? Right? When we're feeling good about how we're stacking up and when we are comparing ourselves favorably, we feel accepted and approved, but failure crumbles our self-worth. And so it's a difficult place to live in. And the challenge is that when we come to God with this lens, our relationship with Him becomes about wondering whether we've done enough to earn His love. We have this constant nagging doubt, does God approve of me? Maybe God would be happier with me if I was more self-disciplined. Maybe if I was, uh, you know, bolder in sharing my faith, God would be prouder of me. Maybe if I was more talented to be used by him, God would find favor. And so it becomes really performance-based, our relationship with God. It's a father wound. The second wound is this, it's the time bomb dad. This is the kind of dad that keeps everyone walking on eggshells. Whether it's high stress or often alcoholism or drug use or whatever it is, it's like the smallest thing, the bad day at work, anything could set them off at any moment. And so the household becomes about managing the conditions so that we don't set that off. And the idea is that the dad has a temper problem and, and the result is that people end up hurt. People end up being abused verbally, emotionally, sometimes physically in this environment. 
And the thought then becomes, how can I control everything around me to avoid having that explosion? How can I control my atmosphere and environment so that I can avoid getting hurt? There's a lot of anxiety in these kinds of households. And how many know it's really hard to love someone that you're afraid of and can't trust? And so the challenge is that when we come to God with this lens that we may fear God and we obey him, but it comes with some resentment. And we try to control God by keeping him happy and keeping him off our backs by doing all the right things. But we relate to God out of duty rather than love, out of fear rather than the awe that we just sang about a moment ago. The third wound comes from the emotionally distant dad. This kind of dad's probably a really good man, really stable, really consistent, really moral, not abusive, but having a hard time to express emotion. You know, I've done funerals for fathers where the family got together and they, they said, I don't remember dad ever telling me he loved me. I don't remember dad ever telling me he was proud of me. He, he had his own way. That's kind of how they usually say he had He had his own way of telling you. And sometimes it was humor or sarcasm. Sometimes it was stoicism. Oftentimes, these kinds of dads grew up in environments like this themselves. And the idea is that it's hard to learn to open up and to express emotion. Poulter says in his book that this fathering style actually makes up about 50% of the families that they studied from uh, 1945 to 1980. It was the dominant fathering style. And uh, that's changed a lot over the years. But, but in this, I, you know, kind of in that, the Beaver Cleaver. Remember Ward, Beaver Cleaver's dad, if you're around long enough to know that? You know, the idea is that I'm doing a good job if I'm providing for my family. I go to work, I work hard, I'm providing, and I'm a good dad. But they don't understand the importance of that emotional nurturing and active involvement with their kid. And so as a kid, the result is this difficulty learning how to open up emotionally. And we have a tri- trouble uh, expressing ourselves to our spouse or to our kids or to our friends, and we tend to keep people at a distance. So the challenge is when we come to God with this lens that he seems distant. And, and a lot of great committed Christians are fall in this category where they really love God, but it's on an intellectual basis. Right? I worship God out of ritual and routine and out of service, but I don't see God as someone who loves me and who I love to spend time with in this relational way. It doesn't make you any less committed, but, but there's an intellectual engagement, but God wants to bring emotional engagement as well. The fourth wound is that of the absent dad. You know, whether your dad was never involved in the picture or walked away at an early age, Maybe it's not that he walked away, but he was never around, you know, always working, always doing whatever, providing for the family. There's a certain level of rejection that a child feels that reveals itself as a loneliness or sadness. It's often expressed in anger. In a June 2023 uh, article of BC Parent Magazine, written right here in our province, there's an article called The The Statistics Don't Lie, Fathers Matter. And this is what it said. It says there's a fatherless crisis in North America. National Fatherhood Initiative states that 18.4 million children, being one in four children, live without a biological step or adoptive father at home in the United States. Statistics Canada reports that 12.8% of Canadian children live in a fatherless household. 
And this is what it says the effects of fatherlessness is, that children growing up in this environment are four times at greater risk of poverty, and they're more likely to have emotional and behavioral problems. Consequently, they're more likely to go to prison or commit crime. Females are seven times more likely to become pregnant as teens. To be more likely to face abuse and neglect, they're also more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, twice as likely to drop out of school. These indicators highlight the enormous risk of these children face throughout their lifetime. That's staggering, but I also want you to know today that I know that there's a lot of single parents, there's a lot of single moms that you are working really hard to provide stability and health and wholeness for your family. I know there's a lot of stepdads and adoptive dads who are stepping up. I know that there are spiritual dads. I love even coming to youth and junior high during the week. I see some of our men stepping up and building relationship and rapport with kids. And, and what I'm trying not to, to set you on a bad pace, what I'm saying is that there's a reality that fatherhood matters and God is coming in and saying, I want to be your everlasting father, that there's hope. That this isn't a hopeless stat, that God is actually saying, this is a statistic that I want to bring hope and healing towards. Amen? Amen. It's important for us to know this. But when we approach God with this lens, it's hard to trust that he won't leave you. Right? It's hard to trust that he's someone who won't abandon you, that you could build your life on it. But it's unto us, God says, that this child will be born and the son will be given, and he will be called Everlasting Father. I want to encourage you today that even in the midst of a painful past, Jesus loves you. That Jesus is committed to you. That Jesus is committed to bringing healing and wholeness to your life. You know, maybe you see some of these patterns of dysfunction and you can look at your own story and say, yeah, I understand some of the woundedness that I've had to work through uh, as the, my family of origin. Maybe you're here today and you're looking at your own fathering. Some of us men are looking, we're saying, hey, I am, God's pointing out some areas of my life that, that I, I want to see change. Maybe you've already raised your kids. How many know it's never too late to make a change? It's never too late to invite them on this journey of watching God transform you. Maybe you've never told your kids that you love them or you're proud of them. Today's the day you could call them and blow their socks off by telling them what God's put on your heart to share with them. How many know that none of us are perfect? Our behaviors aren't perfect. Our parenting styles aren't perfect. I will never stand up here and say, look at me as a picture of perfect parenting. Because my kids will stand in the back and go, you are a liar, right? <laughs> Not the picture of perfect parenting. But I want to be a father who looks at the Heavenly Father, who looks at Jesus, the everlasting Father, and say, continue to mold me, change me, shape me. Help me to be more like you. I know that God wants to heal the father wound and the brokenness that we have as fathers. In fact, it's so important to him, the very last verse of the Old Testament speaks to this fact. This speaks to the power and the effect of the gospel to restore fathering. Malachi 4.6 says, His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. To a world filled with brokenness, pain, and suffering, God says one of the signs of his kingdom will be the restoration of fatherhood. And it begins with how he loves and models it for us. 1 John 3 says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. 
Another verse says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I want you to know today that this verse tells us that you are loved. You are chosen. That you are wanted. As you look at this passage, it says you bring God great pleasure. It gives him great joy to be your father. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. As we see this passage, we see that Father God expresses his fatherhood to us through his Son, who will be called our everlasting Father. He said it's not three different people, it's one God, one essence. All the attributes of God are in Jesus Christ. And he wants to heal and restore us through his everlasting Father. I know we spent time talking about the shortcomings and woundedness that we can potentially have from imperfect fathers. But let's take for a moment to see how God wants to heal and restore us. How can Jesus be our everlasting father? How is Jesus the father we always long for and need? Well, first, he's never absent or distant from us. I love Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. In John 14, 8, Jesus specifically uses the words of fathering. He says, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus promised to be close to us. Christmas is about God in heaven coming near to us, pursuing us, because he's not absent or distant from us. So if God feels absent, we need to ask ourselves, who moved? Because as we looked at scripture, we see it's never God who moves. It's always us. He's inviting us to move towards him. The story of the prodigal son is about the son who ran from his father. But when he ran back, it says his father was running towards him with open arms. It's not God who moves. It's us who moves. Number two, we see that Jesus protects me. John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them from me. Jesus holds you in the palm of his hand. He loves you. No one can snatch you from him. He says, I've got you. I've got you. Number three, Jesus provides for me. Philippians 4.19, the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who we go to when we need whatever it is that we need, because God has given all of us the blessing of heaven through Jesus Christ. He provides for me. Number four, he disciplines me. Oh, you didn't think we were going to get there, did you? Bible says specifically in Hebrews 12, it says, have you not forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you? I, I love this. I, I included this extra verse. Let me encourage the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children. He said, don't make light of my discipline. This is God's encouraging words to us. I discipline those I love. Don't give up when he corrects you, for the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child, but he doesn't punish in a way that's abusive, uh, punitive. He punishes us in a way that's restorative. He's creating something good in us. He's doing it out of justice and love and mercy. It's always what we need. You know, loving is not 
always affirming or agreeing with us or our behaviors or our attitude. Loving is correcting us when we're wrong. That's what love is. Our culture mistakes that. They think that love is affirmation. It's not loving to affirm what's wrong. Jesus is disciplining us to make us more like him to be who he created us to be. Number five is that he, Jesus always prays for me. How many know that a good father is praying for you? Romans 8.34 says, Who will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and raised uh, to life for us. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Jesus prays for you. He's pleading for you. He wants you to win. He's cheering you on. I just picture like a, a dad at a hockey game. He's at the glass, pounding on the glass, going, come on, kid, you got this. That's what God says to you today. Come on, kid, you got this. Turn to your neighbor and say, come on, kid, you got this. Oh, okay, you don't have to participate. You don't want to. Number six, that he takes joy in us. Zephaniah, going back to the Old Testament, this prophecy says, the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. For his, with his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I mean, you know dads are embarrassing sometimes, right? That's their job. We got to embarrass our kids once in a while. We got to unpredictably walk into the room and start singing. You know, we got to yell at them when they're across the fields when they're with their friends. We got to embarrass them. The Bible says that God rejoices over you with singing. You know, instead of being like God with a camcorder, he's like, you know, I just got to capture this. I'm making me so proud, so joyful to see what my kids are doing. He rejoices over you with singing. You bring joy to your heavenly father. I love how author Max Lucado, he says this. How much does God love us? How much does God love us? He says that if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If you had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. When you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and he chose your heart if you'll let him. Face it, friend, he's crazy about you. You think you know somebody? You can't really know God through research or discovery. We know God through how he reveals himself to us. And this is what he reveals to us. He's always revealing himself in greater ways than we could ever uh, imagine. We see that Jesus says, I, when you see the Father, when you see me, you've seen the Father. When you see me, you see the Father heart of God. I am your everlasting Father. I, I want you to know today that you are loved that you're chosen, that you bring joy to your Father today. Maybe you're here and you've grown up with a painful past. I want you to know today that Jesus loves you. He's committed to you. He wants to bring healing and wholeness to your life. Maybe you're here and you're saying, you know what, I grew up in a really great environment. I had a great dad. That's okay. I said, our dads are just supposed to be a glimpse of what our Heavenly Father is and could be and should be. This morning we talked about this idea as Christmas. God came and lived among us. He's not far from us. The Sunday before Christmas, we, we look to that stable and, and we've been talking about, even last week, remember we talked about all I want for Christmas. We talked about all the things we want for Christmas and the list that other people have given us of the things they want for Christmas. So we look to God our Heavenly Father, God says to us today, all I want for Christmas is you. And you, and you, and you, and 
you in the back, you in the sound booth, you online. God's saying, all I want for Christmas is for you, my children, to know my incredible Father's heart and love for you. Lord God, I just pray today all across this room. Lord, I know that many of us have had different experiences. We've had different fathers. None of them perfect. Some of them great. Some of them have had great moments. Some of them have been the source of a lot of tears and a lot of pain. Some of them responded out of their own brokenness and woundedness. Some of us have never known our Father. But you said in your scripture that you would be father to the fatherless. Or that you wouldn't abandon us as orphans, but you love us with an everlasting love. And as our everlasting father, you're committed to us. I pray today on this week leading up to Christmas that we would take this personally today. To know that God loves me. God cares for me. God wants me. It brings him great joy when I'm his child. The way we respond to that love like I have alluded to a moment ago, it's like the prodigal son who goes running to the father only to discover the father is running towards him. I pray today across this room that wherever we're at, Lord Jesus, that you would bring healing and wholeness, that you bring hope, that you bring peace. Help us to see you. For those of us that have never seen a healthy representation of fatherhood, I pray we would see you today. Reveal yourself, God, as our loving Father, Lord, for the woundedness that we have, Lord, turn the wounds to scars. Turn the wounds to scars. Not that we'll forget what's happened in our past, but we'll see how you bring healing and hope. God, if we've been struggling to relate to you in this way, I pray, Lord, you help us to put our guard down so that we can respond to your love and your perfection. God, for those of us that are fathers, help us to love our kids more perfectly like you would have us, Lord. Help us to reflect you to them. God, for those of us that may not have kids or our kids are already grown, Lord, you put people in our lives. You've talked about you put the fatherless in families. The church is to be a family. And the family is where the men of God are able to be fathers to the people that you put into our congregation, into our family. Help us to love each other with that fatherly love. I pray for the single moms today. Lord God, I pray, Lord, that under the burden of raising their kids and providing and all the other stuff that they're doing, Lord, I pray, Jesus, that you would be a father to the fatherless. Lord, that you would bring strength and healing and hope. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Lord, today, let us walk out of this place no more loved and cared for. In Jesus' name.